The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles now, if you would please, to Revelation chapter 2. The New Testament, Revelation chapter 2. Today we're going to begin a series of messages on the second and third chapters of Revelation. And these are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ that were written to, uh, in letters that were sent to seven apostolic churches that existed in the first century. In the first chapter of Revelation, in verse number 11, these are identified by name as seven churches that are located in seven cities in modern-day Turkey. And these churches are in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And for centuries, theologians have debated over the significance of these seven churches. Why these particular seven, and why does the Lord talk about them? Uh, some believe that each of these churches represents the church in successive times of history. For example, the church at Ephesus, many believe, represents the church in uh, the first century up to about 100 A.D. And then the second church, the church of Smyrna, would represent the Roman persecution from about 200 A.D. to 300 A.D. And then the other churches would follow that pattern throughout history, going to the Dark Ages, to the Reformation, and so on, until you come to the last of these seven churches, which would be the church at Laodicea, and that would represent the church in the present day, that is, the church in a state of apostasy. So is it helpful for you to know that there are many people who believe that we are living in the worst days of the church in all the history since Jesus gave us the church? Well, church historians argue about those divisions. Are those correct? Is that too simplistic? Are we interpreting Revelation too much by Western culture? And so there is that argument about it. And I would argue that what I've just explained to you about dividing these churches over centuries is actually incorrect. And mainly because, well, several reasons, but because that is dependent upon universal church theory, and quite frankly, dependent upon the acceptance of Catholicism as being the successor to the apostolic church. So I believe it's not best for us to assign these churches to a period of history, but rather we find in them common characteristics of churches that are in all ages. And what we read here are corrections and commendations of the Lord for churches according to their faithfulness to the Lord. And in these churches, we find the types of problems that we find in the modern church, which shows that in church history, they faced exactly the same kinds of things that we face today. We're not living in a unique time as far as the church is concerned. Uh, everything's been seen before. A little bit of differences maybe in people and places, but everything has been seen before. And it must be obvious that since these are real churches, all existing in one time, in these locations in first, the first century world, and they could have all of these problems at the same time, then it must be true that so can we. 
We'll experience the same things that they saw. So in the first century, there were faithful churches and there were unfaithful churches. There were churches that were in varying degrees of faithfulness, some of them neither really bad and some neither really good. You just have some churches that are hanging out there in the middle. And I think one of the things that we'll learn from these letters is that churches can't stay in the middle. The middle is a passing point from good to bad. And we got to stay on the Lord's side, pay attention, paying attention to what the Lord says, obeying Him and being diligent in all things, or else we end up disobeying the Lord in nearly all things. But the importance for you and me as members of Berean Baptist Church is to evaluate our church based upon the complaints and the commendations that are made by the Lord to these seven churches. And I think that we could say our church has also received a letter from the Lord. In fact, I can think we can say we've received seven letters from the Lord. All seven of these will apply to us in some way or another. And then if you want to look at it another way, the Lord has written a whole book full of letters for His people that's still good for us today. Now, if you'll notice the, the beginning of verse number 7, if you'd skip down there for just a minute, we're going to read the text in a moment. But in verse number 7, this is a statement that ties all of these churches together. You'll find this at the end of every letter. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And that is our job, to hear what the Spirit says, to listen to the Holy Spirit as He speaks. And we will find ourselves somewhere in these letters, maybe on a singular issue, maybe in multiple issues. But the Berean Baptist Church is spoken of right here in these scriptures. So there are seven churches. This is not the universal church. These are seven individual churches. There were seven churches located in each one, uh, each one located in one of these cities. And is it okay if I emphasize that in the past tense, that they were churches, and those churches are no longer in existence today? They were churches, and they're long since gone. And that shows that unless we remain faithful to the Lord, there is no promise that our church can survive. Now, if you'd allow me for just a moment, I'd like to reflect on this with personal experience. It's a sad experience. Because the church that I spent most of my life and ministry in is no longer in existence. In the 1970s and 80s, we were a thriving and growing church. And when my father came to that church as pastor in 1963, there were 13 people. That included six that were in our family. And we met, um, our church building was not a building. It was a basement. I mean, literally, we were the underground church. Uh, we met in a basement, uh, nothing above it, just a flat roof. And we met in a basement nine feet underground. And so you, when you wanted to go into the church, you had to go down the steps to go to that basement. And there we met on a concrete floor. And there were 13 of us when my dad came there. And through a lot of hard work and faithful preaching, the church began to grow. And soon we were able to build on top of that basement, and we were able to come out into the light of day and actually have a church that had windows. I met my wife in, in that church right after, not long after we built the building up on top, I met her, and we sealed our deal in the basement. 
of that church. Don't take that the wrong way. But we, we, I, I, the first time I ever spoke to my wife was in the basement of the church. And I said to her, you're going to be my girlfriend, aren't you? That's the first thing that I ever said to her. And she said, if you say so, and that's the rest of the story right there. <laughs> so we met there. In a couple of more years, the, the church was still growing. Uh, we built an addition for Sunday school space, and then we outgrew that space. We packed 500 people into an area half the size of this room. And so when we met on Lord's Supper nights, we didn't ask anybody to move together. We were already together, about as close as you could possibly be. So we needed more space after that, and then we went and purchased seven acres of ground. Uh, we built a beautiful building, much, much larger than this one, and the church was thriving. We ran nine church buses that were filled to the max, and so we were the church that was headed into the 21st century under a full head of steam. But then there was something that happened. My father's health began to fail, and when he could no longer continue as the pastor, the church chose a new pastor. And the new pastor was not true to the doctrines that the church taught, was not true to what I had been taught and others that had helped to grow that church had been taught. And so to make a long story much shorter, within five or six years, the church wasted away because the doctrine wasn't right, and because of the inability of the people to get rid of a bad pastor, and because the people who actually built the church could no longer stay with that bad doctrine, they'd left, the church ceased to exist. And so today, if you go out, you can still see the property, and there is still a building there, and it sits on finely manicured lawns on that seven acres, a very beautiful place, but it's no longer a Christian church. Today, it's a sick temple, which is called a gurdwara, not even uh, a place that understands anything about salvation in Jesus Christ. And that's a fair warning of what can happen when a church does not stay true to the teachings of Scripture. Now, I want to turn our attention to this text. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, this is the letter that the Apostle John wanted the uh, or rather Jesus, wanted the Apostle John to send to this first church in Asia. This is the church in the city of Ephesus. So Revelation chapter 2, verse number 1, this is the letter. Under the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works." Or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of its place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. This is our beginning. There are basically seven Churches, these are in a loop. 
you see the the map on your screen there. They're they're located uh, in Asia Minor, what is now known as modern day Turkey. And Ephesus, the church that we've just read about in the city of Ephesus, this was the Ephesus was the largest city of that region, the most prominent of the seven. And each of these churches have a, a, a problem in common. They were in areas that had strong outside influence. And to say that those influences were non-Christian would be a gross understatement because the atmosphere that these people lived in was rancid. It was a wicked, heathen culture, worse than you and I have seen. And the problem for these churches was the continual encroachment of the world into the church. Now, all of these people that were in the church at Ephesus had been saved out of that evil lifestyle, that evil culture in which they lived, but there was always the temptation to return to it, to forsake the Lord, to give up in their salvation, to go back living the way that they used to live. And so they always had that enticement. A good example of this would be the church at Corinth, it doesn't even seem possible to us that a Christian church would need to be written to in the way that the Apostle Paul wrote to them. They also were people that lived in a heathen culture. They've been saved out of the culture. But just listen to a little bit of what Paul had to write to those people. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11, But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such an one know not to eat. Now can you imagine that there would be people in the church that they call them Christian brothers and sisters, and they're guilty of these sins, they are fornicators, they are covetous, they are idolaters, drunkards, and extortioners. And if those are the church members, who's on the outside? What could they possibly be like? Do you see anything in the list that sounds familiar to you? I do, because I find that those things that are in the list are also found in the modern church. There is no discipline in churches. We find these same sins inside of the church because the church has accepted the morality of the world. And so the church abandons the teachings of Scripture and replaces teachings of Scripture with code words that I mentioned last week in the, in the Father's Day sermon, the code words of tolerance and acceptance, and that has become Christian. But it's nothing at all different from the Corinthian church or the Ephesian church or any of the churches of Asia that had given in to old lifestyles. They would not separate themselves in holiness unto the Lord. And as we go through this series of messages, I'll have much, much more to say about this, all the problems that the people faced. And some of these churches were resistant to it. They were fighting it. They were trying to stay on the right path. But then there were some that just broke down and they gave in. And we even find one of the churches that seems too far gone. But the first of these churches is Ephesus. This is a body of Christians known as the church at Ephesus. And at that time, there may have been as many as 500,000 people that lived in the city of Ephesus, which made it one of the most prominent cities of the ancient world. And in those days, there weren't 50 churches in town. There weren't 
ten churches in town, or five, or two, there was only one. Only one church is mentioned in the city of Ephesus, which probably tells us it was a very prominent church, probably a large church, many, many members in this church, and a very important church of apostolic times, because this is one that Paul used as a proving ground, a place where he taught other, other Christians the doctrines of the faith. And so you find that there were other Christians that were there, strong Christians, Timothy, was a pastor of that church. The Apostle John himself was there at one time. Other prominent New Testament leaders are found in Acts chapter 18. When Paul arrived there, it seems the church had already started. And there were two people, Aquila and Priscilla, a, a, godly, a godly couple that were teaching new converts in the faith. A few weeks ago, one of the ladies asked me, about women teachers and whether there was anything inherent in being a woman that made them inferior, inferior in their ability to teach. And my reply to that was, no, women can't teach men in the church and women are not to be pastors of churches, but there isn't anything that keeps a woman from learning and becoming a great theologian. We saw that when we talked about Hannah a few weeks ago. Women can become theologians. And many women are godlier than the pastors that they serve under. Well, Aquila and Priscilla, this, this great godly couple, were educated in the Scriptures, and God used them to perfect the understanding of another man, a great orator by the name of Apollos, who became a great man in the first century church. And so under the tutelage of these two outstanding leaders, Christian leaders at Ephesus, this was fast becoming a very strong Christian church. And so the church at Ephesus was strong. In Acts chapter 19, Paul arrived and finding disciples were already there. He ministered to them for a short time. Then he left and returned later to stay in the church at Ephesus for three years. Now, can you imagine having the Apostle Paul as your teacher for three years? Everybody in the church would be a seminarian. This is why it was such a strong church. I, I believe this is the reason that we can read the book of Ephesians and we see there's a very, very strong doctrinal base in that book. And that made the Ephesians some of the most knowledgeable people in the world. We only need to read the doctrine of Ephesians to see that. And the doctrine is hard enough that Peter talked about Paul and said, you know, sometimes Paul's very hard to understand. You ever catch that? In reading from Paul, sometimes he's very hard to understand. But when he wrote the book of Ephesians, evidently they understood it. They understood more than many of our Baptist people understand. And they believed doctrine that many of our Baptist people refused to believe. They were strong in the faith. But that was 30 years before. 30 years before this letter in Revelation, 30 years can change a church, and we experienced that. I just gave you an example. And a church that was strong in the 1970s was a church no longer by the end of the 1990s. Recently, there was a church in our area that was once known as a strong church that voted, this is, they voted against doing this, but they brought it up for a vote that they would change their name. And they would get Baptist out of the name of their church, and instead they would call themselves a Bible church. And so you would look at the sign of their church, and it says Bible church, which quite frankly, folks, tells you absolutely nothing about what that church believes. Jehovah Witnesses 
say they believe the Bible. So how are you going to know what the theological position of a church is if it refused to be associated with anybody and their doctrine? So this, this, this city, this church uh, at, at Ephesus, Paul preached there, Paul strengthened that church. He preached under the shadow of one of the greatest pagan temples as a wonder of the world, the temple of Diana. And when Paul preached there, the people hated what he preached so much they drove him out of town. But he did leave behind him a strong church. The elders at Ephesus are the ones that he met on his last trip to Jerusalem before he was uh, sent to Rome where he died. And that last trip, he met with the Ephesian elders and there he encouraged them to keep on preaching the word of God and to feed the church of God that he had purchased with his own blood. But was it a still church, still a strong church, 30 years later? This is what we need to see. This is the first church in the list that received a letter from the Lord. So we need to explain the letter and see the reason that the Lord wrote it. Now today's just a start. We're we're just getting into the letter just a little bit. We'll get into the beginning of the letter, then we'll get into the heart of it next week. But in verse number 1 is the salutation of the letter, and it begins, unto the angel of the church at Ephesus. That's a very strange beginning. Is this addressed to angels? Well, let's look back at chapter 1. You still have your Bible open. Look back at chapter 1, where John receives instructions from the Lord. And in chapter 1, verse number 20, Jesus says this in explanation, The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Now, he's using symbolic language. There are seven stars, and there are seven candlesticks. And those stars, he says, are the angels of the churches. The candlesticks are the the lampstands that are the light of these seven churches. Now, the angels that he speaks of are not heavenly creatures. These are not flying around with halos and wings and white robes. But angels is simply, that's from the Greek word angelos. And the word just simply means a messenger. An angel is a messenger. An angel delivers a message. And if you'll look at me standing here this morning, that's what I'm doing. I'm delivering a message. And so according to the Bible, in these terms spoken of the church, I am the angel of the church. The angels are the seven pastors, the seven messengers of these churches, and they are responsible to deliver the message that's sent from God to the congregation of the church. So I would appreciate it that at least some of the time that you would refer to me as your angel. And uh, below our our new sign that we've just put out there, I, I think that I would like to put now angel, B. Mark Smith, where the pastor is supposed to go. And I, and I know that the people in the community have thought this for a long, long time. He is an angel of the satanic variety, unfortunately, uh, but that's what they think of us here. But this is what the scripture means. The pastors are, are the messengers. They are the angels, messengers from God. And it's my job to tell you the truth. Now, I want to let you down easy here because my message from God is not one that is unique to me. It's not one that God gave me in a vision. 
It's not one that I dreamed last night. And Jesus appeared to me and told me what to tell you. No, I didn't get anything like that. God doesn't speak to us in those ways today. The way that God speaks to us today speaks to me is the same way that He speaks to you. He speaks through the pages of His Word. That's the only way that we ever receive a message from God. His message is written in His Word. And the Word of God says this is fully sufficient for everything that we need to live the Christian life, to know what we need to know about God. This is what God has revealed about Himself. And that's it. That's all that we have. So I am His messenger to explain to you what is in the Word of God so you can realize the message that God has for you. But it's not unique to me. You can learn the very same message yourself. So when I stand before you, I don't want you to look at me as the one who's prominent. I don't want you to have your focus on me. I want you to listen to the message that comes from the Word of God. And the reason that I do that is because I don't want this church to have the problem that the church I described before had. That is, our church, where a pastor came in and ruined the church because he didn't believe the doctrines of the faith. So don't put your confidence in pastors. Hopefully... You, you can trust them to tell you the truth, but verify what you hear. Verify what you hear by the Word of God. And I don't mind at all if you do that. I want you to verify every word that I say by God's Word. A church isn't small as an indication that a church has wrong doctrine. Sometimes churches are filled to the brim with ignorant people who will not accept right doctrine. Sometimes small churches will in fact have pastors that have, that have um, stayed true to the Word of God and so they just preached all the dissenters out of the church. A thousand people on a church roll is not an indication that some great thing from God is going on there. could be, but not necessarily. It could be that you just have a lot of people who wanted to compromise and this is the place to come and compromise. The pastor is to lift up Christ. And if you idolize the pastor and make him the focus, the church will be in trouble. The church is for Christ's glory, not for the pastor's glory. Now another truth about angels is that they are servants. They're messengers and they are servants. An angel is not going to take away from the glory of God. Do you know which angel did? Thank you do. Satan tried that. He tried to take away from the glory of God. And I would tell you, and maybe I hate to say it this way, but the pompous pastor who seeks the praise of the people and bullies them into submission is more like Satan than he is one of God's angels. We are servants. We are not the lords of the people. Well, we're just getting started into the letter, and I want you to understand this part, just talking about the, the opening words, the salutation of the letter. This is important, too. The salutation stands good for each of these letters. The author of the letter, the Lord Jesus Christ, says he holds the seven stars, the seven angels, and he walks in the midst of the candlesticks. Now I want you to notice then first, is that Christ is the authority of the message. Christ is the authority of the message. Now most of you have red letter Bibles. You don't really need that. Uh, you might, you might, they might as well have printed the letters in every chapter of the Bible in red because Christ said all of it. It all comes from God. He delivered every message in every line through the leadership of the Holy Spirit or the agency of the Holy Spirit.
But I know that you have your red-letter Bibles and you see the passages throughout the New Testament which tells you these are the words that are spoken by Christ. And I'm not arguing about that, that's fine. I just want you to understand that the authority of everything that we say in the pulpit comes from Jesus Christ. I have no authority on my own. Secondly, I want you to see that Christ is the security for the messenger. Over these next few weeks, we're going to read a lot about persecution, a lot about death and dying for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we need to understand that the authority of this message belongs to Christ, and he is the security of the messenger. And we must listen very carefully to him, because it is his message, not mine. But we know that in churches today, apparently there is no fear of altering the message of this divine book. And there are preachers who act as if the message is theirs, not Christ. But we don't have any right to say more or less than what is written in the pages of Scripture and is the message that Jesus gave. Now, it was a very interesting declaration that Paul made when he spoke to those Ephesian elders for the last time. He said in Acts 20, verse 27, For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. What message did he give them? The counsel of God. How much of it did he give them? All of it. He didn't leave anything out. He didn't alter it. He didn't soften it. He didn't change it for the sake of the culture just because they wouldn't accept it. But there are preachers who feel the need to change. We need to update this message. We need to adjust it to the modern culture because it doesn't fit. And if people don't like the message, then they won't come. But I have news for you. The culture never liked the message. It never did. It didn't like it when Paul preached it. The culture didn't like the message when Jesus preached it. And they don't like it when I preach it. The culture will not accept it. A few years ago, the fad was Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Church, and the seeker-sensitive movement was based on the premise that what we need to do is to build a church accepted by the culture, that we should compromise with the new fads and the new techniques. Uh, Shelley said something interesting in her testimony. She said when she came to Berean, there was no one who met her at the door to ask her if she wanted to meet the worship band. We don't have one. We're not a church that's built for the culture. We are here to convert the culture. The culture doesn't like the word of truth because it condemns their sins. It reproves, it rebukes, it exposes sin. And nobody likes to be told they're not as good as they think they are. If the Bible rejects the culture, the culture will reject the Bible. And Paul experienced that at Ephesus. Because the culture didn't like truth. In 1 Corinthians, he indicated that he was put into the arena to be eaten by lions at Ephesus. He was stoned at Lystra five times. He was beaten with a cat of nine tails. There is no hope the culture will like our message. They never have. They never will. So, are you going to tell me, soft, effeminate preacher in your t-shirt, your ripped up jeans, your skinny jeans that we must change the message because people don't like it? Are we supposed to adjust our morality because people don't like to hear about their sins? It's not our message to change. We are the servants of the Most High God. This is His Word. Modern preachers want to change it, though, because this is a message that gets you in trouble. People are not going to like you if you preach this. 
Maybe they do want to take Baptists off the sign because that aligns them too much with people that want to be separated from the culture. When people don't like you, you are in trouble. And so in America, poor preachers, we persecuted preachers. It is so hard for us. Did you know that? It is so hard because we, press, we face the pressures of a picket sign. Somebody might picket against us. Preachers change it because they might lose an opinion poll. While Christians on the other side of the world are hanging their heads in shame, and they look at this and say, Really? You quit preaching the truth because some half-baked liberal painted a rainbow on a picket sign? Well, Christians on the other side of the world preach the gospel when the next word that they speak may be their last. It's not a picket sign. It's a sword that cuts across the neck. Ask our missionaries about it. Muslims slaughter entire communities of Christians. America's just stupid enough to invite the caliphate who murders Christians. Do you know who the world's most persecuted, persecuted group is? It's not Muslim refugees. The world's most persecuted group is Christians. And, and these are the ones that receive the least amount of help or protection from our government. So our government is wrestling with how many Muslim refugees are we going to let into the country. And I won't get into that fight about that, but I wonder, I wonder what's happened to the Christian refugees that come out of Syria. Our government says nothing about them. They're suffering persecution, and we're not talking about bringing them into the country. Well, Americans surrender the truth to unicorns and rainbows, while African missionaries face death for, the stand, for standing for the gospel of Christ. And this is the reason that you need to know the second part. Christ is the security of the messenger. And the thing that he said to us, don't fear those who kill your body, you fear the one who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. This is what God does for his messengers. And this is all we're here put, for, put here for. This is it. He leaves us here long enough and protects us long enough to get the message out to the ones that he intends to save. The Bible never said it would be easy. And it doesn't guarantee that the messenger will not meet death. But the messenger is not to be too concerned about it because Christ is eternal security for the soul. They kill the body, not the soul. And incidentally, Christ also promised to do something with the body too, didn't he? He promised to reclaim it and take it home to be with him. But did you know the enemies of the cross think much differently? They persecute. They kill Christians because they have it in their, eye, in their heads. This is their idea. If you persecute the messenger, if you kill him, then you will kill the message. But I've got news for them, hopefully not for you, that in thousands of years since Christ was here and gave us his church, they have never succeeded in stamping out the Lord's church. Not for lack of trying. It's gone on through the centuries. They can't do it. It will not happen. So will they continue to kill Christians? Yes. Just turn your Bible over a few pages to the sixth chapter in Revelation. Here's a, a future scene in the time of Revelation, when millions of Christians will be killed on a scale that the world has never seen before. And this is what we see, a scene in heaven, Revelation 6, verse 9. And when it opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, 
Dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Catch the end of that 10th verse. Avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth. Now flip back just a few pages to Jude. That's just one page before the beginning of Revelation. And I do believe we see here there is vengeance coming. Jude 1, or that's one chapter in Jude, verse number 14. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them all of their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Culture doesn't much like this kind of talk either. This is not their God of tolerance and acceptance. Actually, as we said again last week, tolerance is no longer the word. Acceptance is the word. Tolerance sounds like reluctance. Acceptance means open your arms, embrace it, and that's what they demand. Acceptance, not tolerance. Well, I would tell you this, that we read all of these things in Revelation. The vengeance of the Lord will come. That does not mean that we as Christians today advocate vengeance. It's not mine to harm anybody. It's not mine to put people to death for what they believe, and neither would we ever even think of doing such a thing. It is ours to let the Lord do what He thinks is right, and let Him do it in His own time. And we're happy to just suffer shame for the name of Jesus Christ and take whatever we need to take in standing for Him. And then I'll give you just this final note. Again, this is introduction. Next week we get into the church, we begin to pull out their issue and the reason that Christ singled them out to receive a letter. But let me leave you with this note about the salutation. And that is the presence of Christ's power. The presence of His power. Verse number 1 says that He walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. That means He walks in His true churches. He's present in His true churches. I can tell you without any reservation, that Christ is here today. He is present here today as the angel, the pastor of the church, delivers the message. A few weeks ago, we had some discussion about how does Christ appear? If you could see him, what does he look like? Does he look like your Sunday school books? And everybody knows the picture, and I only need to explain that. Does he look like your Sunday school book? What does he look like? Colossians says that he is the image of the invisible God. For eternity, the Christ that we will see in heaven is a Christ in his visible, glorified body. At Easter, we learned what the body will be like, that we're going to be like him. We won't have his facial features. It doesn't mean that. Our stature will not be his. No, it means the body that we're going to be given when we go to heaven is a body like his. That means a perfect, eternal, glorified body. And if we didn't have that kind of a body, if you entered into heaven with the body that you have now, you wouldn't be able to even exist in his presence. He is all glory. You, you, you can't exist in his presence. You can't stand the light of his glory. The Bible says our God is a consuming fire. So what does he look like? Go back to chapter 1 in Revelation, and let's look at him. What does Jesus look like? Well, there's a description of his presence, and we kind of read, need to read a lengthy portion to see this, and why shouldn't we? I mean, are we in too much of a hurry to take two minutes to read about the one in 
whose presence we will be for all of eternity? Revelation 1, verse number 9. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice of a trumpet, as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, unto Pergamos, unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paths, that's his chest, with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. Write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, the things which shall be hereafter, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in thy right hand, the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. When you get to heaven, you won't see Sunday school Jesus. Everybody understand what I'm saying? You won't see Sunday school Jesus. By the way, those pictures, get those out of your mind if you can. That's not Jesus. This is Jesus. This is Jesus in his glory. This is the Jesus that you'll see when you get to heaven. My purpose is not to explain the person, the glory, the majesty of Christ that we find in all these images. They're good. We've chosen to glorify Christ in another way, and that's to explain a different portion of the Scriptures. But I would be remiss if I didn't tell you, think on what we've just read. As you sit in this room, the Lord of the church, the Lord of Revelation chapter 1 is watching. He is in this building. He is in the presence of of the Holy Spirit, his glorified body is in heaven, but he is here in the presence of the Holy Spirit. He's the omnipresent God here in the Spirit. So you need to think about that before you decide to doze off when I'm preaching. When the angel talks to you, you don't want to doze off. You don't want to talk to the person next to you when God's speaking to you. I wouldn't advise you to do that. He's glorified through the preaching of the Word. So what does he look like? What, what does he look like? Well, it says his hair is white like wool, and that shows he, his wisdom as the Ancient of Days. His eyes are as a flame of fire, and that tells you that he is penetrating. His eyes see right through you. He sees all the intents of your heart. He knows everything that's there. It says his feet are like fine brass burned in a furnace. That stands for his judgment. It means that we're going to give an account to him. His voice thunders as... Billions of gallons of water that plunge over a massive waterfall. In his right hand are stars. 
And that's the angel of his churches. Now, now might I just add one other thing as we're closing out here, and this is for my benefit. It's good to preach for my benefit too. Be careful what you say about the pastor because the Lord holds him in his hand. Be careful about opposition to doctrines from the pulpit. Remember who has the pastor in his hand. Out of his mouth, it says, goes a sharp two-edged sword. Now listen to Paul, not coincidentally, writing to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 6. He said, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Are we afraid to stand on the Word of God? Why do I tell you, when you come to Brian Baptist Church, we're going to open up the Bible, we're going to read the Bible, we're not afraid to stand on the Word of God because this Word has destroyed kings. This Word brings down governments. This Word divides the joints and the marrow. This is the Word that penetrates the heart of the culture that's determined to resist it. When the Word is preached in Holy Spirit power, the Spirit plunges in that Word and He twists the sword until we become willing in the day of His power. This is the work of the church. Conversion. Nobody has the power to do that but Christ. And He does it through the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit. Do we need to change it? Do we need to make God's Word better? No, I don't care about the culture. Whatever God pleases, whenever He pleases, He he directs the sword to the heart and He plunders it to accomplish His desire. I don't need to change it. I have no desire to soften it. I'm never going to save anybody that Christ doesn't want to save. So you understand this? Would I dare stand before the Christ of Revelation chapter 1 and say to Him, Your word's not relevant for our culture today. I won't say it, and churches that do are in very serious danger. If they're not listening to the Spirit of God, they will get a final call. They will get a letter, and it'll be postmarked with, I will spew thee out of my mouth. The King James translators were too kind when they translated this. You actually find this in chapter 3 with the last church when he said, I will spew thee out of my mouth. And the King James translators were kind. Uh, that word spew is emeo, same word from which we get emetic. And it means vomit. It's a little bit strong, isn't it? A little too strong for modern Christians. But this is the church that thinks they are, thinks they are, they can change. And what they have to say is better than what Christ commands. But what does he say? He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. The Spirit speaks to seven churches. The big question for us, are we listening? Do we hear what the Spirit says to Berean Baptist Church? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you for your word. We want to do nothing less than to stand on the word of God. To give it to people, to expose it, to understand so they can understand what it means. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ, who is our security, the authority of the message, the security of the message, and Lord, that your presence is with us. 
We thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ who died to save us from our sins. And I pray your Holy Spirit would open up someone's heart to that truth today. That we would come to you realizing that we are sinners in need of the grace of God. Needing mercy to be saved from those sins and from the wrath of God that would plunge us into an eternal hell. And the wonderful news of the grace of God is the remedy is available. It's here in the Word. All we need to do is to believe it. Repent of our sins and put our faith in you. And Lord, we just pray that you would speak to someone's heart today over it. We pray for Christians today. We've read about this church at Ephesus and just glanced at a little bit of the problem, the culture trying to encroach upon the world. And Lord, I pray that members of Berean Baptist Church would do everything that we can to fight the influx of the culture and to convert the culture, since that's what you have told us to do. Convert that we might see the presence of Christ in the heart of everyone who believes. Thank you, Lord, for these things. Speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org